Psalm 27, I want to cover the first four verses. We'll read them and then we'll kind of walk through a few of the, the majority of the rest of that particular psalm being prepared by him. You know, my salvation, your salvation is beautiful, it's wonderful, it's individual. You weren't saved as a corporate, as a group. It was your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's not forget, it's not just all about me. It's not all about you. God has implanted himself. He literally forgiven us of our sins. We're told that when we received his forgiveness, when we agreed that we need it, we acknowledged our sins personally and said, God, could you forgive me, please? Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you are God. I don't understand all this. But what, however that unfolded when you became born again, God took up residence within you, we're told. The Holy Spirit resided within you. You're born of the Spirit. And when we're born of the Spirit, God then begins to prepare us for his work. He actually has a, a plan beyond ourselves. You know, you get to impact someone in your family and somebody in your workplace. And you get to impact, you know, somebody in the school. Or You see what I'm saying? It, it's not just what works for me. We need to realize God calls every single Christian to maturity, the process of maturing. Not the arrival, but the process. So with that, let's consider this passage. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Glancing back at verse 1, let me first say, simplicity invites consideration. Complexity creates confusion. So let me just make that clear. When someone presents something to you and it's just so complex, you're like, I have no clue what you're talking about. You don't go, oh, yeah, I get it. So, and it's so important because when you look at the way Jesus taught and the pictures and the metaphor and the similitudes and the way he presented the truth, he, he, he stayed right in this simplicity with depth. Complexity unveiled through simplicity. And so we have here this, this simple truth most of you have, have contemplated and considered some of the things we'll look at. The Lord is my light. My light. He, he, it's, it's personal. We see that. David is saying, this, he is my light. Well, what's that say in such simplicity? You see more clearly. You walk more confidently his light removes our fears. You know that. I, I, I experienced this this morning. I got up early this morning, and I couldn't see where I was going because we had no lights on. And I stubbed my toe on this hideous round footstool thing that I think is for the dog and not my feet. And you just you, know, you kind of walk around the corner, you're like, oh. You know, and it's like, well, because why is that? The, the light, see, it's so simple. It is so simple to us. David's saying, you're my light. You bring you know, clarity. You remove confusion. You allow me to see. I can, I can walk more confidently because you're with me. He goes on also to speak of in the same passage, same verse, the Lord is my salvation. 
when you and I, as Christians, think of the word salvation, we almost always reference conversion. In other words, you were saved from the penalty of your sins, so you were born again then. Oh, cool. But, but the word, it, it doesn't speak of just that individual experience. That's essential, of course. But understand, David's on the side of the cross. David's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And so David, when he's speaking of salvation here, it's speaking of the same thing, but more what we would see in circumstantials. The Lord is my deliverance. The Lord is my rescue. The Lord is my safety. See, so he, he's seen this, and, and we know you can study his life so many times. It was manifest, that it was real before him. Another word that would describe what David's talking about is welfare. But I can't use that word because our government jacked it and tore it up, and we don't know what it means anymore. Um, welfare means help given to someone in need. So God is the one who gives help to someone in need. I will make this mention, do you know you have need? Because sometimes we, we, we don't go there first. And so we, we think we can provide or take care of or resolve, and all that does is create a problem, but it does lead you to that discovery. You need the Lord. Notice it says here, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is... David knows he has been, he is, and he shall be. You know that, you, you understand. This Psalm 27 was not David writing that as a child. It was probably somewhere midway through his life. We don't know. There's no uh, content, you know, any, anything within the content that gives us something definitive. But he'd been walking with the Lord. He'd seen his hand. He'd seen his faithfulness. I have seen the hand of God. And then he said, he, I still see it. And, and maybe that helps you to go, I will continue to see it. I hope you can, can calm and pause and stop long enough to know he, he has been, he is, and he will be. It's so important that we, we settle that and, and realize that. He says in that same context, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? If the Lord is with me, then, and then who, who, who should I fear? Who can conquer the Lord? No one, no thing, no thought, no theory, no force. Let's consider what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. And, and the wording says, for I'm persuaded, but I think you can see it's really conveying. I am deeply convinced, I'm thoroughly convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. See, those are things that you don't, we, I don't see. There, there's evidence of them, but I don't see them. Uh, Ephesians 6 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, there's a whole lot going on you don't see, Okay. But those things won't derail the Lord. It says that the, no principality or power, the things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can remove us from that. And you know, most of you, I know most of you, you, you know this. But I want to help you and encourage you to keep things simple. 
remind yourself. You know, David went on to say in Psalm 27, the Lord is the strength of my life. Very personal, of course. Think about the pictures God uses to teach us his truths. There's parts in the Bible that speak of God being the anchor in the storm. So you understand what an anchor does, right? It it keeps the ship from being tempest-tossed if it's in harbor. It allows it to to, to deal with what's there, but it doesn't get ripped up. It's solid. The Bible speaks of God being our stronghold, our refuge, our protection. Refuge is an interesting word. There's a few of you guys here. The rest of you, the guys will explain it to you if you don't. You get it. It's going to be simple. Outside of Napa, there's a lake called Lake Lowell. Lake Lowell is a waterfowl refuge. So what that means is in October when duck season opens, they get to a certain part of the lake and they can't get shot. And if they stay within that framework, no one's going to be blasting at them. So you see the picture for you and I, there's this ref, God is a refuge. He's a, he's a, literally, it says in another spot, he's our hiding place. He, he's, he's our safe harbor, our fortress and our defense. I must say it, I know some of you are going, oh my, I learned this the second year I was a Christian. I get it, I get it, but can, let me say it this way. It is essential that we make this our deep-seated, non-negotiable, unchanging foundation for all our thoughts, our experiences, our interactions, and our actions. Trials and temptations will come. The Lord is my strength. And that, that, that's something you, you actually prepare ahead of time. You, you, you realize that, you know, verses 2 and 3, we can see the wicked will come, the enemies will be there, the foes will be there, an army may camp against you. But this declaration, David's right. I, I wonder as I read this and I try to grasp, because the Holy Spirit brought it to David. It's not David's words. It's the word of God put upon his heart, brought forth through his life. But it's the truth of the Lord. And I wonder if David's telling you or telling me or just telling himself. Is this psalm not a psalm that says, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. Rock, the Lord is my, he's telling himself, he's reminding himself. My heart shall not fear. In this, I will be confident. And I say that as it's so essential because we will face things that we didn't see coming. We'll face challenges and different things will hit us. And the Lord is the strength, the light, the saving one in my life. He is my confidence and hope. He has been, he is, and he will be. Uh, Hold on to that today and carry that through the days and weeks and months to come. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know his faithfulness. And learn to see, we see in this passage, and you'll see it in Psalm 119, as the psalmist is conveying the need and the desire to grow closer to God, that they seek the Lord and they were looking to God. Now, as we grow in our understanding, we see in verse 4, One thing I desired of the Lord, that will I seek. And then it goes on, and and some of you maybe were tempted, you know, to sing that. Behold the beauty, the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, the temple of the Lord. 
What we see there, what's being conveyed is as we grow in our understanding of him, we desire to know him more. A desire for life knowledge, not just head knowledge. Um, We have an increasing desire to be consciously aware of his presence. That phrase, consciously aware of his presence, my history with that. As a young man, I wasn't even out of high school. I started work at a, at a truck shop at Kenworth dealership in Boise. I worked there for about 10 years and then became a Christian. And I worked there for another nearly 10 years before I departed and went into ministry. But at first 10 years, I, I used uh, adjectives I don't use anymore. I, I use words and descriptions and depictions that I don't, I don't present anymore because I was born again. And so I, I was really uh, in a hard spot because I have 10 years of history with most of these guys. They know me that way, but now I'm different. And, and they're trying to assess and figure out, and who, what is this deal? Did Davis get religion? Because that was the assumption. But I remember walking from the break room, which was upstairs towards the front of the uh, building, and you had like 11 shop stalls that were drive through So anyway, I come down the stairs, and I'm walking through the gauntlet, so to speak, because you, know, you tr- pull your trucks in from each side. If you have a trailer, you pull through the whole thing. And so anyway, I'm walking through, and, and it's, I just really felt like it was a gauntlet, because guys are working at each spot. And I remember thinking, you know, God, I want to be consciously aware of your presence, now, that wasn't me thinking of a good phrase to carry for, for decades. I believe the Lord put that in my heart, to be consciously aware of his presence. So as I passed by and things were said, and I, a lot of it I probably assumed it wasn't even there, but I just was having you know, this natural pity party or whatever, and just kind of working through, I want to be consciously aware of his presence because it affects how I live. It affects how I engage. I have an increasing desire to always be aware of his presence. We had a high, uh, young adult group that met many years ago here at Mountain Home. At, uh, we, had a, we were in the other building, and we did our Sunday services, and then we started a Saturday night service. And it was really because a lot of these young adults, man, they wanted to do something. They were serving on Sunday and really engaging. And so we had this Sunday night or Saturday night service, which really was those, those people I've just described. But it was, it was very interesting. It was very fun. But it was kind of carnal, you know what I'm saying? We're just fun-oriented, it was just a blast. And so we, we realized that um, there's times that the, the conversation went downhill fast. Kind of like, you know, and so it just really was taking a, a dive. And so this phrase was developed, or actually just birthed, if you would, I believe it was from God. Before you say something, before you say that joke or that mannerism, run it by the Holy Spirit. Like, hey, God, did you hear the one about the guy that walked into the bar? Yeah, never mind. You know, there, there was an element of recognizing the presence of God. You can't just have it as a thought and theory and a part of your doctrine. That God never leaves you nor forsakes you. That he dwells within you. And then, you, you know what I mean? It's like when you are aware of that, it changes how you do things. And we see this. David is aware. He's like, I, I desire this thing of the Lord. I will seek it that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That phrase speaks of someone being welcomed, received. To dwell in the house of the Lord would be to to be invited to sit down and to stay with. 
than David. Man, I want, I want, I just, you know, because you understand, he wasn't wanting to go hang out physically in the temple. That wasn't a possibility. It wasn't an option through the course of his life. He wanted to sit down and stay to inhabit and to interact, to be at ease and at peace with God, to dwell in the house of the Lord, where he could just be there, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Speaks of to be in awe. The word beauty there, as I looked into that, I loved how it was explained. It speaks of God's delightfulness. That's what the beauty is. It is his delightfulness. It's almost describing maybe an attribute or I would say a relational expression that, that God is just delightful to be around. This delightfulness. So cool if you think about it. I, I want to be where I can just, I'm not distracted. Do you? Would you like to be like where you're just not distracted by sin and, and by history and heartache and temptation? You know, I mean, hang in there because it ain't going to happen until you get to heaven. But you could have, there's, there's this longing, there's this sense of like, oh Lord, to behold your beauty, the beauty of the Lord, your delightfulness, to inquire in your temple. And it literally speaks of to consider, to admire, to, to in a sense, understand the physical presence of God. Well, I think a, a considerable, or a, a New Testament portion to consider would be Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where the writer declares that we, because of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ, we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in our time of need, and grace and find help in our time of need. Do you see what that imagery, once again, is presented relationally? David says, I'd love to be in your presence and dwell in your house. And in the New Testament, we see ah, just to be able to come boldly into the throne of grace, to go directly into the president's room without fear of repercussion, to have such a relationship that you can just go in boldly and then just receive that mercy and grace to find his help in time of need. It's a beautiful relationship that David's conveying that we understand, and I believe most of us really long for at the very core of who we are. I want to roll through these next ones with just a kind of a sentence or a summary, so to speak, building our way um, to the latter part of the psalm with the time we have left. Verse 5, I would say, speaks of God's faithfulness as trials continue or as enemies seem to increase. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. He'll take care of me. He'll, he'll place me. He'll set me high upon a rock. Speaking of this solid foundation, David's seeing God's faithfulness. In verse 6, we see David's confidence in God. My head shall be lifted up. I will offer sacrifices. I will sing. Notice what he finishes with. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. It doesn't mean that adversity departed or there was no problems. He just means I will sing praises to the Lord. Remind yourself, set this alongside this, in this foundation I've already referenced. We praise God because he's worthy of our praise, not because our situations turn favorable. Situations don't have anything to do with our praise. Relationship is why we praise because of who he is is why we praise him. And so the context is you can see that David's confidence is, you know, the, the enemies will be around, the troubles will be there, you know, religious activity could happen, but I will praise the Lord. 
We see in verse 7, David's dependence upon God. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. So he, even when he didn't know what to do, realized that's what he does. He'll cry out to the Lord. He depended on God to take him through. If you study David's life, you see so many examples of this. Carrying us to verse 8, where David continues to go to God. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, Lord, I will seek your face. When he wants to, when he feels like it, nothing to do with it. He was invited into this very presence of God. He longed to dwell with the Lord. And he just continued to go. And I want to encourage you, don't let your circumstances rob you of your joy. Don't let the relational loss and the hardship you've been through rip you off even more. Choose to continue to go to God. Also, we see in verse 9, David's confident description. Oh, God of my salvation. He related to people. He understood the relationship was through beings, through the being God, and, and him as a human being. And he seems to attach, like, don't hide your face from me. You know, don't, don't turn from me in anger. You've been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. It's not that David was afraid. I think there's an element if he was, he was assimilating. Man, I know people have done this. This has happened to me. Oh, Lord, stand different. Stand apart. Do not forsake me. Oh, God of my salvation. Carrying us to verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. It's interesting it didn't say if they will. If my father and mother forsake me, it says when they will. And I think that's important to understand that David is conveying in that culture the strongest relationship he had was, between, was with his parents in regards to instruction, authority, respect, reverence. And he's conveying that, that they're not God. You know, they're, they're going to probably let you down. People can and will turn from you. And, and it perhaps, possibly, some will actually turn on you, but he will not. He will not. Then the Lord will take care of me, he says. And that's not in, in any way to say his, his parents, you know, freaked out or flaked out or whatever. He just This is reality. You have let people down at some point in your life. And you know that. You know you could have made the call. You know you could have stepped up. You know you could, you, you could maybe some of you even pressure yourself too much. Because you also know you've been let down by people. And, and don't cop an attitude towards them. Just understand the Lord will not let me down. You know, Jesus, his disciples were, were, they were unique. Man, they're tight. They're close. They love the Lord. They got to see him walk on water. They ate some super fish. Man, this is awesome. And Jesus said, really? Tonight, you're all going to depart from me. You're going to bolt. And Peter, being this, the leader of the group, speaking with confidence, says, uh, Jesus, I get what you're saying about them. They will. They're, they're, they're just that way. But I won't. Though they bolt, I won't. And Jesus says, you will. And guess what happens? He does. And they do. They scattered. They literally bolted at, at his arrest. At a time when physically he needed them the most, they departed. What about Paul? 
The Apostle Paul, who we, look, we learn so much through the book of Acts, we learn so much about this model of how, we just have, how to serve and, and to live in a sacrificial way and a godly way. And at the end of his life, he's writing to uh, the, the, the one he's handing the baton to, to run the race, to Timothy. And as he hands this off to Timothy, he, he gives this declaration at the end of 2 Timothy. At my first defense... No one stood with me, but all forsook me. He's not complaining. He's not having a pity party moment. He's just saying, listen, they all took off, everyone. And he gives a little, he actually lists a few by name. But then he also says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. When all else fails, he knew this. And I have to say, I think Paul too is reminding himself when he's putting that truth out to be, you know, documented, if you would, the Lord stood by me. Prepare yourself today for what you might face tomorrow. I'm not a gloom guy. I'm not like, you know, you know, oh, everything's going to be bad. But I'm just saying, be honest relationally. You don't know what's going to unfold. And I'm not, that's not being negative in any way. That's, that's positive. It's like, listen, I know the Lord will never forsake me. Though there could be friction, Though the conversations could get heated, though the relationships could be difficult, the Lord will not leave me. And it's so important because you're going to go through things. And if, if you don't solidify this reaction, if you don't train yourself, this is how I'm going to deal with it, then you're prone to the path of least resistance, right? Because next thing you know, people say this, well, I guess we should get a divorce. Well, you've been... You've been you, <laughs> Moses did your service. You've been married too long. You know what I'm saying? But we should just, because, you know, no. Determine how you're going to, well, but we've only been married three months. Determine how you're going to deal with it. Take certain things off the table. Understand people will let you down. But recognize the Lord will take care of me. I will honor him. I will choose him. Regardless of what happens, the Lord stands with me. The Lord strengthens me. Notice how the verse ends. The Lord will take care of me. The Lord will take care of me. Peter, chapter 5, verse 7, also conveys this truth. But as we cast all our care upon him, and he tells us why we would do that, one of the reasons, for he cares for you. It is so easy to... to open up and to, to share our hearts with someone who cares for us. And if you realize God's not there to catch you at your wrongs and your faults, but he literally cares for you. He knows what's best for you. It's easier to open up, right? I mean, you get called to, to the principal's office and you know what you did. You know the teacher on the playground knows what you did. It's well documented what you did. And when two hours later the note comes, you're supposed to go to the teacher's, the principal's office, you're like, I don't want to go. What are my options? Can I bolt? Because you know you got trouble. But it's much different when you're called, when you know that they care for you, someone cares for you. If you had an interaction with a principal on the playground and you didn't have this altercation, but you have an interaction and you sense this person really was concerned about your family situation and they conveyed compassion and kindness and love to you, then your willingness to go to meet with them is changed because what your perception about them. 
When you know he cares for you, you get it. We see it. It, it, We choose to go to him. He cares for us. Carries us to verse 11. I hope that this is one you will hold dear. Not only today, but until you see Jesus face to face. Teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me your way. To a certain measure, we could say most of us have been trained today. In, in other words, before you visited, you, you picked this place called Calvary Chapel Mountain Home. And as you came in, there's certain observational skills you had that you trained yourself on how you would engage, like how the service would go. You remember the first time you went to a service that's like this? And, and you're like, kind of subdued, but you know, hey, okay, whatever. You just kind of, but you, you trained yourself, right? You knew when to get coffee, you knew if there would be muffins. You knew when to leave the parking lot. That's actually a, it's just that's experiential. But where I'm going with this is you can be trained, yet not be taught. You can be trained in the ways of man and not taught by the Lord. History proves it. Look at what's called the church. So much of it is trained behavior in a group setting claiming spiritual leading. And the, the summary has to be... That doesn't seem to be the case. You can be trained and not taught. And I, I want to be taught. I, I embrace this. I, that's why we had some changes over the course of summer. I want to know your way, O oh Lord. I don't want to do it just the same way because for 23 years we've did it similar to that. Lord, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you teaching me? And hopefully you're requesting that as well. Lord, teach me. Teach me your ways. I, I know a little. I've learned some. But I want to know more. I want to be teachable. Verse 13. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I think I can speak for every Christian and some of us more consciously aware of this. (laughs) I long for heaven. I really long for heaven. But I need to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I pray, you pray. I need to see his, his fulfillment of those prayers, his, his response, if you would, his power present in our lives. It's not an unhealthy or unbiblical request to say, Lord, I just need to see your hand here in the land of the living because things are just going sour. Things are weird. You know, just the headlines are driving me crazy. I, I need to see your power. It, it, it's a reasonable expectation for a child of the living God. To say, Lord, I just need to see. Now, you can't make a demand on what it would be. Lord, if you're there, you must do this. That's negligent and, you know, you're a brat. The truth is, you're like, okay, Lord, I, I just, I don't even know what I need. But I need to see your power. I want to see, and I, I experienced his power. I shared this earlier, this earlier service. I've seen the goodness of God. As a young Christian, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what Christianity is, how much do I just learn, how much do I, am I taught, how do I walk closer with the Lord, and I seen something about me that was so powerful. I was willing to serve when I wasn't usually willing to serve. See, I was really good at, at self-serving. You know, when we, before I even met Kim and got married, I had, you know, bought a motorcycle if I wanted one. I bought guns if I wanted to. Do. I had a rail frame dune buggy if I wanted it. All these things, you know, they just come and go, snowmobiles, you name it. 
we got married and my, my values started changing. So that's just a value-based decisions. But I noticed this. I wanted to serve in that particular time because we had young kids. I wanted to serve in children's ministry. I actually wanted to be around somebody else's brats while I was with my wonderful kids. You know what I mean? That, that was like literally the way my brain would process this stuff. And I realized, and, and this is serious, I knew that was different, that I wanted to be there. There was a power of God manifesting itself in my life, enabling me to serve in a way that I know I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I've seen the goodness of God in the land of the living. And you, each one of us could share various stories. If you've been a Christian for very long, you could share these. Where it's the power of God manifested in a way that he gets the glory and you experience the joy. To where we're like, wow, this is amazing. Let's finish up with verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Everybody loves that concept. The thought, wait. But wait, you have to understand it. The, 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 the volume of it, if you would, is, is wait in faith. It's not just tolerate the timeline. It's not just like, oh man, I gotta wait on the Lord. No, see, it's understanding by faith, he's going he's gonna to bring about all these things he's promised and all the things that David's declaring. It'll be manifested in your life. But there's an element of, of waiting. It involves hope. It involves persistence. It involves patience. It involves service. Because notice, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. It's not just sitting, waiting for some confirmation. It's not being patient in the prayer closet while you isolate, like thinking somehow God's going to speak to you in some fashion that you perceived. It literally, I think you can see it, it, it involves expressing love while you learn more about his love. It, it, it speaks of hope and, and, and confidence and, 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 being, and the word means being bound together. So being bound together with the Lord, you know, be longing to see, longing to know, God, you know, I just want to see your hand. I just want to know this power you speak of and all these things. I just want to know it. Wait, I say on the Lord. It's, it's understandable even in, in worth considering to, to think what does a waiter do in our world? A waiter... Actually, they're patient. They wait till they come to your table. A waiter serves you. Do you see? It's not the, the exclusive context of this, this word, but it speaks of being bound together. Waiting on the Lord. I want to serve. I want to be a part of whatever he is, and, and he'll direct me as I'm turning to him. A few of you know this one. You ever tried to turn one of them old style cars that don't have power steering? It was powered by Armstrong, you know? So you're sitting in the car. I remember this. My dad's going to push this truck. Said, okay, we'll turn it. We're going to go right over there by the gravel pile. Well, I think I'm supposed to turn now. Well, I'm just a, you know, 87 pound weakling back then, you know? It was like... Don't judge me. And so here I, I, I try to turn. I can't. I lift my rear end off the seat. Nothing's happening. And dad's just watching. He's like. <clears throat> and then him and I think it was my uncle start pushing. And now I can turn it. Because it's moving. 
See, I take that simple picture and present it to you. When you're serving, it's easy. you see God's hand directing more so. You understand, okay, Lord, direct me. I want to wait on you as you show me how to live for you. And that wraps up our time. But I'm going to tell you one other thing. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. It's our need, every one of us, that we may grow closer to him and that somehow he could use these feeble frames in reaching other people, that we could be a comfort and a strength to those around us because you uniquely will meet people that I will not meet. I I might learn their name, but you will have a different relationship. And you can be that instrument that God brings hope and comfort and healing through. And he's inviting you to be a part of it. But you don't know what to do. So what do you do? Teach me your way, O Lord. Show me how in this season, in this time, how do I do this? How do I live this out? So when we have the worship team come back up, they're going to lead us in the song of worship. We're going to turn our attention to Hebrews 13. We'll bring it up on projection. If you'd stand with me, we're actually going to pray together. I have a preference. I, I like to end our services with a reading of Scripture or praying through a particular verse or looking at a prayer that's written in Scripture as today. And so I'm going to ask you to be looking at the projection while you pray. And I know that's awkward for some of you, like, that's not legal. We're supposed to hold our hands, and I remember from Sunday school. You know what your Sunday school teacher told you that? Because you're just not looking around, and you're not hitting the one next to you. So you hold your hands, keep your head down, and you can focus on your prayer. But, you know, today, if you would like to, I encourage you, as I pray through this, you know, really own that and realize that God has a prayer for us. He has truth for us. He has an encouragement to us. Let's pray together. God, as we would consider what you're showing us today, as we would ponder and wonder and just offer ourselves, Lord, help me, teach me, God. Remind us what we see here, even on this projection, on this passage of Scripture, that you are the God of peace, that you brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. God, through your perfect design, and your complete accomplishment through the blood of this everlasting covenant. Oh God, you've invited us into the family and so we would ask that you, God, would continue what you started. I ask, Lord, for myself and each one of us that you would make us complete in every good work to do your will. That you, God, would be working in and through us what is well-pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Be glorified, O God, and we say together, amen, and we sing to you, Jesus. Thank you, guys.